Keeping Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. Welcome back to Keeping Track. Today, we talked to Mary Kane. She is doing some big, exciting things in the sport right now. You know her from her performances as a phenom high school athlete. She tells us about her experiences in track and field, some of the negative experiences she had out in Oregon in the Oregon Project Group, and how that has informed what she's doing now and how she wants to change the sport for the better. She tells us about Atlanta Track Club. She tells us about her future goals. She's not done running people. She's barely 25. She has a bright future ahead of her, and she is always a delight to talk to. So here we have Mary Kane. A big shout out to Saucony for sponsoring our season two production costs. At Saucony, a good day is when we get to run. A great day is when we inspire someone else to run. Run for good, and thanks for keeping track. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Keeping Track. We have a brief catch up today, um, and we're going to try something a little different. Ro, what is this plan for the catch up today? <laughs> so we're going to use this little catch up for like a little workout. We're going to set ourselves a little in interval workout, a little fartlek, and we're going to talk about different topics in those little intervals. And we're going to fly through some topics to catch up because there's so much to catch up in. We just want to make it fun and, and keep ourselves on track. <laughs> yeah. If we didn't have um, fartlek timer, we would be talking for half an hour. So the plan for the fartlek is three minutes, two minutes, and then three by one minute. I don't know if anyone out there has done this workout, but it's, it's a it's good a, little... It's a feel-good workout. It's a feel-good. It's a feel-good feel good workout. Here. Okay. <laughs> so topic one, let's start our timers. We... Three, two, one, go. Yep. Olympics. We, we are talking about the Olympics. I know it's uh, probably a few weeks ago in our memories, but we have not discussed it yet on the pod. Roisin. No, and how, how we haven't discussed it is the Olympics after all. And um, shout out to Molly Seidel with her bronze medal. That was so exciting. Been so happy to have her as a guest. Also to Delilah Mohammed, who's also been a guest on this podcast, who was a silver medalist. And Sydney McGoffin's gold medal win and world record was just phenomenal. Um, what do you what do you think, Molly? Those were phenomenal. Um, I also want to shout out my event, Women's 10K. Uh, Emily Sisson was top American. Um, yes, Emily. Yes. Nice one. Sifan Hassan pulled off almost the triple, except no one could beat Faith Kipiegon. So she took the 10K yeah. in hot, humid yeah. weather in a crazy fast. Uh, they broke 30 still. Um, yeah. she, she won the 5K. So she took a tumble. She ran... Six races. Um, yeah, amazing. The faith to- in the fifteen hundred was unbelievable as well. Like three low three fifties after coming after after having a baby, just like mommy's strength. And moving on from the fifteen hundred back to the eight hundred, a thing. Though she was like phenomenal. Her composure as a nineteen year old, she's just amazing. Yes, and we'd love to have her on the show. Yes, that's we're manifesting that we want. <laughs> we want to somehow get a hold of Athing Mo. Um, she's yeah. the future. She's the present. It was amazing to watch. 
Um, yes. And I also and then to- Courtney Ferrix. Yes, sorry, Molly. We're in, <laughs> we are in the same brain. That's what I was just gonna say. Um, Courtney Ferrix, that bold move. It was amazing to watch in the so steeple. Badass. I thought thought she yeah. was gonna get gold for mu- much of the race. Yeah, and it's amazing. And now we're that was our first split down, two minutes down. So actually we have one minute to go. So keep going, Molly. <laughs> okay. So I do want to pivot to you brought up a good topic, the mental health discussion that Simone Biles started at the Olympics. Um mm-hmm. what what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of building on the summer from Naomi Osaka as well. And uh, these high profile athletes are just so much pressure, so much media attention. They've been kind of heralded as the ghost, right? Twitter came out with their own emoji for Simone Biles. She was on every ad in, in America all summer. Um, and then for her to kind of step away and say, look, I'm just not, I'm struggling right now. I think I actually really admire her. And I think um, it just normalizes that, like, you know, she is human and humans have struggles and mental health is something that just because you're an elite athlete you're you're not um buffered from that completely and I think it was a worthy conversation and I think there's a lot more to be had about it and I'm I'm happy to see it out in the ding 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 yes that was a great wrap-up um that was our three minutes on the Olympics okay (laughs) now moving on to the current schedule of the Paralympics did you split your watch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had a little 15 second recovery there. This is like a good, <laughs> like <laughs> high intensity workout here. Um, yes. The Paralympics is on and I hope everyone's tuning in. Um, I just want to give a shout out to one of my dare to believe ambassadors in my program in Ireland um, is Nicole Turner. She got a silver medal in the butterfly two nights ago. Um, so shout out to Nicole and uh yeah, she's doing great. And also Greta Strymaker, she's another Dare to Believe ambassador. She is doing amazing. And sorry, I didn't shout out. This is back to the Olympics. Big shout out to Kelly Harrington, who won Olympic gold medal, and she's also Dare to Believe ambassador. So give my all my little ambassadors in Ireland such an amazing shout out because they are incredible. And all the athletes who competed um, in Tokyo, they're all amazing. And I'm so excited for them all. Um, yes. but back to the Paralympics, Molly, what are you, what are you into? Yes. So I do want to give people a bit of a schedule for them. We are on day eight today, August 31st. Um, the meet goes through the track portion and the conclusion of the games are September 5th. So if you haven't been watching and you want to tune in, go to NBCOlympics.com or the NBC sports app. Some cool stats that I saw. Women have won 65% of the medals so far at the Paralympic Games. So the ladies are crushing it. And just a few of my favorite track ladies to shout out. um, Tatiana McFadden, who's doing a number of track races. Usually you see her on the roads. So I love seeing her on the track. And Susanna Scaroni, another um, woman that you usually see cruising down New York City Marathon or the Boston Marathon roads. So those ladies have been sprinting around the track. They've both won um, one medal at least so far. And then mm-hmm. most recent medal, I saw this shout out when I was uh, browsing through the Track Girls Instagram, who is a great Instagram site for anyone who hasn't checked out Track Girls. Um, Brianna Clark just set the world record for the T20 category in the 400 meters. She ran 55.18. 
and won the gold medal. And oh, she's wow. really interesting backstory. Her mom was a great 400 meter runner, um, Rosalind Bryant Clark. So, oh, and one more thing, oh. Valerie Adams' sister, coached by Valerie. I know we're probably over time, but Val- Valerie yeah. Adams' sister also won gold in the shot put and set a world record. And she has a pretty, no way. Good, pretty good coach, I'd say. So their family <laughs> has an extra champion at the dinner table. Oh, I didn't see that. I'll have to look that up. That's amazing. Yeah. And Valerie, of course, back to Valerie, who got a medal in Tokyo. Was it silver or bronze? I think she uh, I think she was bronze. I bronze, believe. yeah. That was incredible. Um so tune in and um, amazing competition going on there. And I uh, hope everyone's enjoyed. So that was in three minutes through the Paralympics. And now we are moving back to Molly. Um equality pay day. What's the story? Well, first I want to do the the Diamond League. So we're going to do... Oh, okay. We'll do do two minutes for the Diamond League. Okay, ready? Go. Um, So if you thought... You're such an overachiever. The workout's getting longer. (laughs) This is so molly. I'll add a few more reps there. Yes. It wouldn't be be my workout without adding a rep. Um, So if you thought track was over, there's more. Um, Eugene, Lausanne, and Paris Diamond League have already happened. Next on the schedule, if you are looking. The last two Diamond League meets are Brussels on September 3rd and Zurich, the Diamond League final, on uh, September 8th and 9th. Um, so there were some, you know, some notable things happening, some notable things about to happen. Um, one question I have is, can Kate Grace win the Diamond League final? Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's been racking up points, but the Diamond League final is worth more points. So whoever wins that wins the whole thing. And also, will there be a new 5k world record? I think that's going to be attempted mm-hmm. by Sifan. Mm-hmm. And some of the performances that stood out, um, Francine Niansaba, who moved up from the 800 all the way to the 5 and 10k this year, um, due to the DSD rules. Um, she didn't want to adjust her hormone levels and she is killing it now at the distance events. Um, she just ran a sub 823k to win at the last meet. Uh, in Paris mm-hmm. and she was fifth or sixth at the Olympics in the 10k so she's really taken to the longer distances yeah some phenomenal racing still happening post-Olympics and you know Molly you're you know yourself you know after the Olympics did you ever come back and race after the Olympics are over you know like some people are like toast right now other people are like flying right now it's like a whole mixed bag on like how people are doing, right? Some people are shutting down the season. Other people are like, you know, getting better every race. (laughs) Yes, for sure. We saw a lot of people shut down the season, actually. I think this year was probably tougher than most with all the COVID protocols Mm -hmm. and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, The athletes that are really killing it are almost the athletes that didn't make the Olympic team, like Josette Mm -hmm. Norris, who was Mm -hmm. top three, uh, top three at the last two 1500s that she ran. So she's crushing it as Mm -hmm. a 1500 runner this year. Yeah. And we can't yes, not talk yes. about the Jamaican women. I love the drama going on in the the 100 right now. Women are people are talking about women's sports all over the news. Um mm-hmm. so that's always a good thing. Yeah. Flying some of the fastest 100 meter running like in a long long time. So there yes. could be a world record by the end of the year. Like um it's very exciting to see the Jamaican ladies battle it out. Um ding ding ding. ding great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, we are way over. We are used <laughs> that, to that. That was two, game, but, two and yeah. a half minutes. Okay. <laughs> What's next, Ro? Okay. So back to equality uh, payday. 
Yes, women's equality in sport. Um, we'll do a minute on that starting now. Nicolove um, mm-hmm. Ultra recently did a really cool thing. Um, I've partnered with them the last two years, um, and I love seeing this. They have a they have a Save Women's Sports campaign on Instagram because you know the algorithm has changed from likes to saves. So if you save a women's uh, woman athlete's mm. post, it actually um, shows Instagram that that's something you want to see more of. So hit the save button. Um, and they mm. gave a hundred million dollars towards gen- gender equality in sports to increase visibility of women in sport, which is amazing. We all know the stats, 4% media coverage in the U S 2% if it's a masculine seeming sport, um, 1% mm. of sports industry dollars go back to women's sports. So it's, it's a lot. Mm. Um, so yeah, they, they're doing some exciting things. Yeah, and over in Ireland, just announced yesterday, the FAI, which is the Football Association of Ireland, which is the soccer association in Ireland, have just um, introduced equal pay for men and women when they pay internationally for Ireland. So I know that's what the US women have been campaigning for for the last few years. And, you know, just shows you like the ripple effect of like some of those big campaigns, even if they're not fully successful, like the US women's soccer, they haven't actually got the quality pay yet. Right, Molly? And yes. that like other countries do take note and there is this ripple effect around the world. So it's great to see and long may it last. Um, and there's ways to go there. So, yay. yes. Yes. And one more shout out to the women's world record in the half marathon, which goes down every year. Mm. <laughs> now <laughs> we're currently under 64 minutes, which is crazy town people. That's 301 per K. 6343 mm-hmm. is what Yelem Yehala ran in, uh, was it in Ireland, Ro? There's a race in Ireland? Yeah, in, the yeah. Northern, in Northern Ireland, yeah. yeah. Um, so Molly, as an American record holder, current American record holder, what is, you know, you have a sense of like how close you are to that record or how like how far off that record is for you. Like what, what do you think of that when you, when you see those times? It's like 301 per K, kind of savage running. It's amazing. Like what you know and then at the same time we look at your time and say the same thing about your time but like you know so to so the slower you are the more they all those times all seem crazy but for you being like an elite athlete like what do you think of that like world record my mind is it to your time? my mind yeah. gets blown my mind gets blown it's not at all close to my time I'm basically uh four minutes slower than that than that um mm-hmm. and I've run you know 15 minute 5k on the roads before I can't fathom, you know, repeating it and going mm-hmm. again and again mm-hmm. and again. So it's truly mm-hmm. amazing. Um, and just how low can it go? I just keep wondering. Um, so yeah. that's, that's yeah. pretty crazy. Okay. Yeah. That was definitely longer Great. than a minute. And our final <laughs> minute row, we're going to talk about yeah. who we have coming up. We have, um, the one and only Mary Kane coming on, um, next after our little catch up. And we had a lovely interview with Mary a few weeks ago, hearing about her new women's elite team in New York City and a great conversation with Mary and, and how she's got a lot left in her running and she's getting to kind of, you know, write her own story and, you know, do all the things that she always wanted for herself. And then she's getting given back to her community, given back to the running community um it's great conversation and really enjoyed it yes me too um mary tells us about um atalanta is the name of the track club she tells us where the name comes from and how it will be structured and it's all really exciting so we will let yeah, i'm you... excited to see that yeah yeah and and i totally see what she's doing she's having um lead athletes be mentors and 
And I always see that potential in athletes to be able to do that in their community. Um, so it's great to see how they set that up and um, structure that and wish them the best of luck with that. Yes. Take it away. Uh, we'll let Mary Kane inspire you in this interview. Yeah. Thanks for keeping track. Welcome back to Keeping Track, everyone. You are lucky today. We have the whole panel together. Myself, Roisin McGettigan-Dumas, Alicia Montano, and our guest, Mary Kane. Mary is super exciting. She is the current CEO of a new groundbreaking training group called Atalanta, which we will get into. But you know Mary from her days as a multiple-time high school national and world record holder. She was the youngest American athlete ever to make Team USA in 2013, and also the youngest athlete to ever make a world final, formerly of Nike Oregon Project. Her struggles there have led to her affecting much of this change in how girls' sports are perceived and coached. And we are going to link articles there, but we want Mary to just say hello and tell us where you're at today, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast. This is one of my favorite ones to listen to if I'm just on an easy run and need a little bit of inspiration because I love what you guys are doing to promote women's sport, something I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, so I guess a little bit otherwise about me, I live on the Upper West Side of New York City. I'm a proud New Yorker. I don't think I'm ever going to leave, <laughs> which my dog seems to like because she's a big fan of Central Park. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, New Yorker and dog mom, I, I feel like are my probably favorite go-tos. I love that so much. I don't know if you know, Mary, but I was born in Queens, New York and I get to like, you know, thumbs up all the New Yorkers from time to time, but I'm like raised in California. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> they're like, Oh, do you know? And they're like naming all the boroughs and all these, I'm like, oh, I'm faking it just in case <laughs> the hospital knows me. I don't know anything else. I love um, that. So you said that you don't think that you're ever going to leave New York, but you did for a period of time. Molly just shared all of your accolades as uh, a young athlete. And then you moved to Portland, Oregon for a period of time to train with the coveted, what was known as the Oregon project at the time. Can you, I just want to dive right in there. Just tell us a little bit about your time as a high school athlete, how you even like were running as fast as you were at the time that you were, what it, like what entailed that. And then you moving over to professional sports into this world that seemed to be better than it turned out to be. Yeah. So I guess I started running in seventh grade. I, before then had always done like the end of year, like gym kind of based week long track program. And hence my fifth grade self thought they were a runner, even though I ran for like five days and (laughs) I was also high jumping. So I, you know, I was probably honestly a a more well-rounded athlete then, but I'd grown up a competitive swimmer and always thought that that was the direction that I wanted to go long-term, you know, my idols growing up were the Michael Phelps, you know, of the world, um, big Rebecca Sony fan, fun fact. You know, she's the breaststroker. <laughs> and I, at the same time, was just really talented at running. And um, when I was a sixth grader, I ran 547 for the mile, just in like this random gym class race. Um, I had eaten sloppy joes beforehand for dinner. And <laughs> lo and behold, rolled around on the track for the rest of the time. And I think everybody was just like, that's a kind of fast time. 
but we also knew nothing about me. I mean, my family about running. And so, you know, in seventh grade, I did varsity swimming in the fall. And then in the spring, I tried out for the team. And I always joke because the first ever practice I went to, I was running with like the other seventh graders. And I kept getting so far ahead of them that I was like a little bit behind the eighth graders. But I think it looked like I was the slowest in that group. So for the first couple of days, I kept being like thrown in the sweat lowest <laughs> like group. And then suddenly there was this realization like, oh, wait, she's faster than all of the seniors. What is happening? And then I think from there, it just every year I built on it. So seventh grade, I ran outdoor track, eighth grade, indoor, outdoor. Freshman year, I won my first state championship after completing cross country, indoor and outdoor. And then by sophomore year, I did all four seasons because I actually ran in the summer. Like, wow, that's crazy to do and set the national record. And that was kind of what propelled me, I think, into more of this like elite division because I had qualified for the Olympic trials and it was my a national champion setting race that had got me on Alberto Salazar's radar. And so the fall of my junior year, he reached out to me and was like, I want to coach you. And at the time I was still kind of a novice. It was my first ever Olympics running endurance events and not only watching the sprinters. Cause like, let's get real sprinters are who wins the medal. So what was a random 12 year old doing watching right. an day? Um, and I was thrilled and so excited and it felt like a dream come true and those first two years were incredibly successful because I still had this buffer of being home in New York and you know a lot of people were talking a really good talk and it sounded amazing and I could kind of have this ability to have my Hannah Montana moment of you know being this professional runner while also like still going to the same school I'd gone to since I was in kindergarten and still being the ultimate nerd and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'm moving out to Portland thinking this is a totally natural next step. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately I went out there and realized that a lot of the things I had told and a lot of the things that I had maybe seen in small doses when we would go to like a little training trip or I'd see people at a meet was really how things were run. And, um, you know, it was unfortunate to feel like I had done everything I could to prepare myself to be like in this professional training environment and suddenly realized that, you know, people, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors unless you're really out there. Can you tell us your age? What age were you? How old were you? Um, so I guess I graduated high school when I was 18. So I moved back when I was 18. It was right after I had won world juniors. So I, completed my like what I consider I mean I guess I kind of consider my high school years like sophomore through seventh grade just because like that's when I was like on the circuit but I I ran world juniors and I won it and so I was sorry we need times here you know oh, this was 2014 and 2014 won world juniors and that year I was also second at U.S. champs behind Jenny Simpson in the 1500 and I was feeling like Fit and fabulous. And I'm like, let's go to Europe, like, you know, bougie yeah. stuff. And <laughs> I was told right afterwards that I wasn't fit enough. And wow. I didn't really know at first, like how that could be because I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm racing really well. My first couple of races were quote unquote slow. Like I was running 201 or something in the eight. And I kind of kept pressing and pressing, like, why can't I go? I, second in the U S in the 1500. 
And finally I was told it's because I'm too heavy. Wow. And so rather than moving in August, which was initially the plan, I moved out early to Portland because I was supposed to try to fast track getting fit, which was AKA losing weight. Um, and unfortunately for me, I was really good at doing it initially. And I dropped like, I think it was eight pounds or something in like six weeks. Um, and that was when everything kind of started to go downhill. This is just before 2015 now, just before world championships. Yeah. And so that year from like fall 2014 through like that summer of 2015, Mm -hmm. it was just this constant barrage of you're too heavy, you're too heavy, you're too heavy. And, you know, at the time I was just so in it and everybody else was telling me like, yeah, you are, (laughs) we agree, lose weight. Your teammates are telling you, your coach obviously was the first one to do it. We're talking physiotherapists as well, Mm -hmm. psych docs. Mm -hmm. Your entire team is literally telling you that you're too heavy. And that is what's determining your your fitness. Yeah, it was all about weight. Um, And, you know, the the thing is, at the time, um, you're super young. And so you're like, you guys probably know better. And, you know, when you're an 18 year old girl, um, who like probably developed a little bit on the later end, you know, I'd always had kind of this like natural, like, you know, price skinniness because I did sports. And even though, yes, I was eating like McDonald's and smoothies post races, like you're still keeping quite a svelte figure. And, you know, probably my senior year, I did start to develop a little bit. I didn't naturally necessarily gain weight, but you, you kind of look at yourself in the mirror in these insecure years and you're like, yeah, I, I guess maybe I don't look this. Maybe I do have more, is my face fatter? And you're starting to go down this like mental spiral of agreeing with them because they're the best in the world and nobody's telling you no. Mm-hmm. Um, and the few times initially that I would call home or I would talk to like my old coach or different things like that, you know, they would be the only people who were like, no, 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 you're fine. What what are you talking about? Your weight's like, shouldn't be an issue. But what would happen is that often, you know, my parents, (laughs) I don't know, good people or something would then call the coaches and be like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you talking to Mary about her weight? Like she Mm -hmm. seems really upset. And what they didn't know at the time is that then I would get in trouble by the team. So I would have a sit down talk about how unprofessional it is for me to cry home to my parents and I'm not allowed to do that. And, you know, if you're going to be doing that, like, you know, your 30 year old teammates don't do that. And, you know, all those sort of kind of like putting you down talks. And so it created this cycle where I just wouldn't really call home because I I did want to be a professional, you know, college kid, like this is when you grow up and you're an adult and, um, they shamed you for calling home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Massively. And, and it's kind of crazy to look back because I think those first couple of years while I was still at home, my parents were like included in things and it was like, yeah, like we'll call your dad. We'll ask him, you know, can she take this vitamin? Like maybe check the local DRO and, made them feel super involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as I moved out there, that whole communication system completely stopped. And it mm-hmm. became, you're on this team. You do what we say. You do what we do. 
and you don't complain about it. And, you know, in retrospect, that's completely traditional grooming tactics is you get the parents involved early on and then you cut them really harshly. Um, and you kind of create this system of fear of reaching out to people outside of your circle. And at the time that was the NOP. And I think that's why for me, like people say all sorts of things about me on the, on the negative and I really don't care. I kind of laugh it off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I would fight anybody about is bringing my parents into it. And I think I know for them that this whole experience that I went through, like really crushes them and they have so much guilt about it and sadness and everything. And whenever a multi-billion dollar organization calls out my parents in a statement or I'll say it (laughs) um, or, you know, even just like grown ass adult men who don't know anything about my story being like, well, her parents should have known better. It's like, Mm. I'm sorry. Like, why do people want to blame victims in these sort of situations? Like, Mm -hmm. why is it what the girl was wearing that is the first thing people want to point to or, you know, how they look or what they were saying or they should have known better Mm -hmm. versus, wow, this was a really shitty situation. Like, I bet they're traumatized (laughs) about what happened. Exactly. I don't mean to laugh, but I think the reason that I do is to me, it just seems like common decency and common sense that it is almost comedic how much of a control mechanism people try to perpetuate by blaming those who really shouldn't have known better and and Mm -hmm. reasonably should have been trusting of an organization that was painted as the best in the world. I think one of the reasons that your story resonated like so strongly once it became more public was because people were surprised that the most professional group or the most successful or the most well-funded group in the country was doing so many things wrong. Like as far as, you know, why would you make an athlete that's performing well suddenly try and lose weight? But also that you, like you were a phenom athlete, you were so young. And I think we always are so fascinated with the phenoms in this country in sports and in talent shows and in anything, but it's so they're so often like not looked out for or like victimized in some way. And so I think people were really like saying, Hey, like, how do we stop doing this too? Like, how do we make sure this talent doesn't get taken advantage of or mistreated or broken in some way? Right. And part of what you talked about, Mary, about like, Oh, now I want to be a professional athlete. They're telling me this is what professionalism takes. I think there's like this huge veil over what people think actually you know, what it takes to be a professional athlete. And a lot of it is how you come. There are some things that you fine tune, but like the more restrictive and like isolating that you make things actually the worse you do. So you're so just like on about understanding that now as like a grooming tactic to like break this person down, strip them, and then have them do exactly what you say. And in a way that's obviously harmful and then not only harmful for you, but for the future of the sport and like young athletes when they come in. And so, um, yeah. man, I, I wish that I've shared this before. I don't know if you ever heard this, but I wish that running against you in 2013, I remember we raced at Prefontaine and I 
back in 2012, Alberta had been asking me to be on the team. And I was like, you know, like 10 foot pole. No, thank you. My daddy's still asking for, there's part of you that feels like, oh, they're like, what do they have? Like, Ooh, should I be the mole? Should I see what's going on in there? You know, he invited me to go into his, (laughs) he invited me to go into his cryotherapy van in London at the Olympics. And I was like, I'm good with your creeper van, but like, what is it in there? You know? And then when I saw you and I was racing in 2013, I was like, this, this, she's so awesome. I hope that she's being taken care of. I can't tell. And I just like was hoping that like, by like looking at you, you're just like, I hope she like feels like, Hey, you know, anything I'm here, but it's like one of those things too, from the back where, or like an audience or like outside looking in, you're like, maybe I'm overthinking all of these things. I don't want to plan it in this young person's head if everything is fine, you know? So I don't know. I just, I want you to know now, you know, that anything in the professional sports line and anybody listening, like, this is why we have this podcast. We want there to be these open conversations for people to know, like, Hey, if I have questions about something that's like worrying me, I want to be able to tap, tap and reach out to someone who might, I don't know, be able to help me in this department. Sometimes it's hard to know if you are inserting yourself or you're helping. No. And, and, you know, I've said to people over the years that there were different periods where had somebody reached out, I probably would not have been ready to hear it. And not, not necessarily those super young years, because I think then it was just, it was different. But once, once you're in the cult, it's, it's only really you who can pull yourself out of it. But until you fully, like, until I fully moved out to Oregon, I think that was the moment where had somebody called me up in 2014, 2015, 2016, who wasn't almost in it themselves in some capacity, it would have been really, really hard for me to hear. And I think that's why the people who I did reach out to were the people who were, you know, kind of in it. And maybe that was other Nike teams, people who were out in Oregon themselves and and teammates. Um, And the truth is just everybody said, do what you're told. And if you do what you're told, you're going to do really well. And in retrospect, there were times I really did not do what I was told. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was like helping the team by saying no to things and being the like, oh God, I think sometimes I probably thought too highly of myself and that I'd be like, no, I do not need an inhaler. Like you guys probably don't know this, but that's against the rules for me to mm-hmm. take if I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, could have been the mole. Could have been mm-hmm. the mole. But I, I, I wasn't because when you're in it, Right. Let's see it. Right. A hundred percent. So you did that, uh, an op-ed with Lindsay Krauss with New York times where you detailed and you shared more of your experience. Um, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's on YouTube. You can totally just, uh, type in Mary Kane, a uh, New York times op-ed with Lindsay Krauss. That's lots of words, but hey. of course, it's one of the top stories of that year, that year it came out. <laughs> yes. Google's your friend. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's super important for, for you to have shared that. And then from that, you have started a group that'll help us and help like break the mold for uh, women in professional sports. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've now moved towards to kind of help um, not have a story like yours? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing that was really important for me from the get-go was helping other people. And that sounds super cliche, but I know that the reason that I first kind of stepped out to share my story was because it had only been like six weeks before or something that the USADA case 
had been finalized and a lot of information was made public about that investigation and why Alberto Salazar was banned by USADA. And that was the moment that like, you know, in the, like my metaphor is that the rose colored glasses fell off. And it was because up until then, even though I knew things weren't always great, I had always treated it as like, that was my problem. Like I wasn't mentally strong. My mental health issues were my issue, not something that was like part of the circumstances of how I was treated and the emotional abuse that I had gone through. And in reading that report, I suddenly realized, oh my God, like the moments where they cite like athletes had been told this, but that's not true. Like I was always being subtweeted in that. And I was so horrified at kind of suddenly realizing that abuse is something that so often when you're living through it, you can't name it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true with all forms. And in, you know, the case of something like emotional abuse, I think for so long, it's been normalized in a lot of different capacities. And so there's this less clear, like it is wrong. It is right. Because it's more just like, that's normal in sports. So I guess it's okay. And the truth is it's not. And it's, and it's a really horrible thing for anybody to go through. And I realized in that moment that unlike a lot of people, because I had this title of phenom, because I'm this blonde white girl from New York, I was going to have the opportunity to be the person who sat in front of a camera and said, listen to me. And I personally don't think that's right. I think everybody should have been able to do that and should be listened to and should be heard. But I felt this almost responsibility based on like my platform and my privilege to be the person that sat there and said, Hey, this happened to me. Like we can't do this. This is not okay. And, you know, I was still very early in my own like healing process and realization process when I came out with the New York Times piece. And over the next, I would really call it year, there was a lot of soul searching for me and a lot of work with my therapist and work with my team to kind of, I think, rewrite in my head, my history and and my problems and kind of realize that for so long, I'd been trying to get help for my eating disorder rather than trying to get like trauma support. And, and I couldn't fully, I think, address a lot of my food issues until I addressed why I was being triggered by food. Um, and so this is like a long backstory to say that, like, I hated how I felt and I never wanted anybody else to ever feel that way. And so I, you know, sat down really last fall and thought about how can I make this more than just me talking about it? How can I really create something that's actionable? And the two things that really I felt needed to change is how we're talking to young people and how we're treating our pro athletes. And it's because at the time I was both. And I'm like, you know, this shouldn't be just for phenoms. It should be for everybody who's really affected in these two categories. And what was really born from that initial idea and was built through the help of so many incredible people to get us to where we are right now um, is Atlanta, New York. And what our organization is, is we're a service-based nonprofit in which we are employing professional female runners 
to continue to train and be supported to race and really achieve their dreams at the highest level of competition. But in the meantime, build their career skills and serve as mentors to young girls within the city who we will be supporting through mentorship training sessions and, and teaching about them about really what I've kind of coined as healthy sport um, or a lot of the different, I would say, both like emotional and physical components to sport that you don't always learn within your first year of any sort of competition, but instead it's kind of born out of this need to find meaning in something that you've done so long and like, but suddenly realize, you know, just doing stuff for the sake of competition isn't always what's really going to keep the longevity in sport. Wow. So Mary, do you have an athlete roster yet? Hopefully by the time that this comes out, I'll be able to send you some names because we've been kind of knee deep in the recruiting process. And I think where we are right now in the next couple of weeks, we will have a finalized initial roster. And this first group of athletes is going to be probably like a smaller team. Maybe there'll be five of us or so total so that we can, at the end of the year, also like build on top of that initial class. Um, Because as you guys know, a lot of like existing pros contracts and at the end of years versus like NCAA athletes are kind of post NCs. Um, And so that's how we are kind of planning on like breaking things down from a roster perspective. But, you know, to start, we're like a middle distance, distance women's team, but truthfully long-term as we continue to grow and hopefully develop more and more funding opportunities. Heck, if I could have this be like an all discipline based program, I think there's so many different reasons that athletes of all disciplines could serve as incredible mentors and New York's a beautiful place to live. And so to me, this is just a start. I love the model that you're using. I like how we're seeing, and even the model that you're in, in Tracksmith as an athlete, I like that we're seeing different options for professional athlete support and just how that can be, you know, some people might want to do it the way where all I want to do is focus on running, pay me to run. But then I like how there's other avenues now available for athletes. Um, You're seeing really cool collaborations and cool effects come out of it that aren't performance-based that are really valuable to the running community. Yeah, absolutely. And Tracksmith was definitely, um, and my other employer, New York Roadrunners, like I think in so many ways, like the two of them have inspired how this model is being created. And so it's interesting in that I'm not, I'm not recreating the wheel here, but I'm, I am creating something that's totally unique within the professional specific world. Um, Although like to begin with, there already are certain employment-based structures that already can be used as comps. But I think for me, how I kind of also talk to athletes about it is many of the most successful athletes out there, there, the people who are just running, have to kind of create this for themselves where they are independent contractors. But most of the actually most successful athletes from a like, you know, marketability perspective do have what they kind of consider side hustles versus like an actual employer. And they're kind of constantly in this independent contractor loop, which creates the problem of sustainability and longevity in terms of your financial, you know, career long-term. And so to me, it's like, I'm solving that problem by telling an athlete, Hey, you can not really get paid to run your own social media account 
for the next X number of years that you're an athlete and never really be able to put it down on your resume, even though you're putting in all this time and effort in order to be able to make a living. Or we can teach you the skills, how to run an actual organization, social media account that you can then actually put on your resume and have a a letter of recommendation whenever you want to take that next step. So a lot of what we're doing is kind of work that you'd have to do anyway, but now you're truly being valued for it and you're truly being paid for it. And that is spoken like a true CEO. (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. Wait, hold on. Where did you come with the name Avalana? Did I did I miss that? Oh, it's so good. Tell us, Mary. Tell us. Yeah. So um it's there's really like two etymologies, at least for me, for how this name came about. I think to start on the personal end, uh, when I was a sixth grader, I mentioned earlier I was a nerd and I took Latin. And at the time, you know, I'm like coming off of fifth grade where I ran like a 610 mile or something. So naturally, when I'm trying to pick a Latin name. My dad just goes, you should be Atalanta, knowing nothing about running. Because in Greek mythology, she was the fastest being alive. She was faster than all the men. She was faster than all the gods. And yes, people who ask, was she faster than Achilles? Honey, she beat his dad in a wrestling contest. Okay, so yes, she was better than Achilles. And so I always was really inspired by this myth over the years and loved kind of going down the rabbit hole of learning more about One of the few generally feminist-based Greek myths, I mean, for anybody who knows anything about mythology, there tends not to be such positivity towards women. (laughs) You know, there's still some problems in there, but in general, um, her story was that she was a princess who was supposed to marry, and she said she would never marry unless somebody could beat her in a race, and the only guy who could do it kind of cheated. So, you know, well, we won't count that part. (laughs) (laughs) But I just had always had this like affinity towards the story. And when I was talking to a coworker at New York Roadrunners, so short out to Gordon, I had mentioned to her just like some names we were thinking of. And Atalanta was the first one I said, and she immediately freaked out. And she's like, you have to do that. And I was like, oh, why? She goes, the first ever New York City-based women's high performance team was Atalanta, New York. And this was back in the 1970s, 80s, you know, before women really had the same level of opportunities as we have today in the sport. There was a team where women had to hit certain standards in order to get in it. And although it wasn't a professional team in the way we think of it today, it was one of the first really kind of high performance specific groups. And it felt like such a beautiful way to bring not only history, but also like a, a personal story for myself into it. I love that so much. I'm of course going to uh, dig into the story of Atalanta itself. I want to know the story behind who was the cheater. It seems like that's what happens, right? It's like we're doing your thing and then some cheaters want to just go ahead and anyways, that's my So own. I will say this because I think it's a little of a cheeky thing to say, um, is that in Greek mythology and Roman for that matter, although they tend to have kind of the same tales, um, it's the gods who are not the good guys. You're never really rooting for the gods, if you will. You Mm -hmm. tend to be rooting in Greek mythology to the humans who are often at this disadvantage over the great and mighty power of those who kind of run the world. And I always felt that Atalanta's story was very powerful because it was one of the few where she time and time again kind of rose above the powers that be. 
I love it so much. I love it so much. So Adelana, educating and inspiring female athletes to use running and movement in a healthy way, healthy and lasting way. We can find Atlanta on atlantanyc.org. So that's atlantanyc.org. And then how can the greater public contribute to the cause? Yeah, so we are also on social. Atalanta and Y is our Instagram and Twitter. And that's where we will be kind of continuing to unveil more information and share more. If you go on our website, you can join our newsletter, which we are excited to kind of really start diving deep in, especially once we have athletes onboarded um, and can help us a little bit more with some of like the creative marketing and management side of the organization. But then from a more even direct financial perspective, we are a nonprofit. And so we do accept donations on our website and for, you know, for, for prospective sponsors, we're trying to kind of break the traditional model of just having one kind of company rule over us. Um, and instead have really opened it up to have many collaborations with many groups who are interested in not just professional sports, but also the ability to give back to younger girls and, and hopefully make sports a better place. And so we have on our website, the email contact at atalantany.com. And it's been really incredible getting just like such a diversity of messages sent from you know, people who already want to help, people who want to expand the club to new cities. I'm like, I don't think we're ready for that, but thank you. I'm keeping a list of everybody's names and um, prospective sponsorships. And so, yeah, it's been, there's a lot you can do and, and a lot we hope to do for you. And so it's going to be an exciting adventure for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I'll be following along. And for you, uh, Mary, obviously this is part of for you, but racing, running wise, what are some of your hopes, dreams, goals? Yeah, so I'm excited first off to have training partners soon. Um, that's going to be a fun thing. And and anytime, you know, I'm talking to an athlete, inevitably the question of, so are you my boss? <laughs> comes up, And I'm like, no, no, I'm very much the person who like, I expect you to beat every single day in a workout. Like that's your, that's the only place in the hierarchy you have to be is beating me so that we can, you know, drag Mary along to faster time soon. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think structurally it's incredibly inappropriate to have one in which teammates would in some way have like a hierarchy system on it within the organization. And so as founder and CEO, I'll be doing a lot of like front facing work and donor work. And, you know, um, because this is something I'm so passionate about mission wise, like I think my ability to kind of connect with you know, people on the mission, it's just like an important part of my own personal role. But then as an athlete, you know, I'm still out here training every day and, and yeah. I could be racing. I think in some ways my kind of season for this year took a backseat just for a couple of reasons. One, um, I'm nearly at my one year post-surgery anniversary. I had had hip impingement. So I had bilateral hip arthroscopy July of 2020. And I've just taken a really like slow and growth mindset based, um, progression towards my running. And so I got to a point where I was probably in like 414, 1500 shape and was like, maybe I'll start hopping into races, but I just had like a little flare up with certain stuff that I have to work on posturally. And I just figured why, why kind of keep cramming something in when there's so much going on and there's a lot of opportunity kind of right around the corner with the team. Um, and so I've been kind of in this like training perspective where 
I just hope to make a lot of people shook come this fall and <laughs> winter and be like, oh, she still, she still does this. I well, love it. You're Mary, are you, how how old? I want to remind people. Um, are you 25 or 26 this year? I'm 25. You're still so young. I don't even think I was like figuring out how to race well until I was 25, 26 years old. So watch <laughs> out world. <laughs> Mary, Mary, it sounds like you're like part of your healing process is to create this team and like kind of continue, finish your, or continue your career in a way that you like holistic way. That's like you're getting to be a competitive athlete, but you're also kind of giving back to your community and creating something that you would have liked and you're getting to do it <laughs> and you still yeah. got time which is so cool yeah no absolutely and I appreciate you guys saying that because I think you know as, as fellow pro runners you understand what like a career can look like and I think one of the, one of the few questions where I'll just be like holding my tongue a little bit is they're like retired athlete and I'm like oh I'm 25 guys <laughs> like I'm actually been working on like Still here. continuing my longevity versus um you know fully pivoting but I, I think at the same time I find there's something to be very powerful about the fact that right now as an athlete I'm really in no way valued for my performance and it's something that's truly going to be a, a personal endeavor of mine and yeah something that you know if, if I run well and I'm able to train with her teammates which like based on the training I've been doing I will <laughs> it's like you know all those sort of things it's it's a it's a perk if you will to any organization that I'm working with but I do find it to be something that's been very freeing that mm. I'm really out there and even when I made the decision like you know kind of when I was at that point where I'm like oh I think I'm ready to race and I decided hey there's a couple form things that I really should work on first before like kind of just diving in and, you know, potentially risking irritating something else. I had that kind of like breath to be able to say like, yeah, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait until I'm ready until my body's ready until, you know, I am kind of wanting to be out there. Um, and there's something just really, I think, freeing about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know, world championships, IAAF, diamond legs, all that is not the end all be all. And like, I really like this holistic approach to just, you know, your self-betterment and racing can be a part of that. And I think there's something to be said that like, you know, and, and athletes who've had an injury history, I'm sure can relate to this, but there's so often this need to be like, I have to get back to exactly where I was yesterday. And for a while I used to do that. But at this point I've kind of accepted the fact that, you know, unfortunately I did have quite a few injuries over the years. And there's just certain things, even like biomechanically that like, I'm not going to risk running through it. Right. Like somebody else might say, screw it. I have like insert like 40 different issues, but I'm just going to the arms and plowing through. But like, I do care about my health and my long-term, you know, ability to run and my ability to kind of, you know, maybe like just back off for a month and not do workouts and just run so that a little thing doesn't become a big thing. And so it's stuff like that where I'm like, Oh, wow this is everybody should feel this way everybody should know that like a little thing doesn't have to become the end of the world or Mm -hmm. a big thing um if you just have kind of this healthy mindset to say like okay like we're just we're just gonna mix things up and maybe push things back a month or two yeah and you know I think a lot of athletes do struggle with that do you feel that all this work you've done in the last few years has helped you be more grounded 
in yourself and your identity outside of your performances yeah and I think the part of it is too is that like a lot of what has inspired me over the last few years is the sub-elite New York City running community and the truth is within that group of individuals there's much more of a like let me see what my body can do let me try new things you know and I think even the like ability for some people to say like screw high mileage like I'm going to be a cross-training athlete or say like I don't need to be able to grind out an 18 miler if I'm doing a 15 miler, like whatever they need to get the most out of themselves, or even the ability to say like, I had a crazy day at work. I need to take the day off because me trying to just like slam this 45 minute run in doesn't make sense is something that I find like very helpful when I have my Mm -hmm. own, like, Oh, should I, shouldn't I moments. And the truth is the way I build my day training still comes first. Like this is still something that I'm doing at a very like specific and high intensity level, but it's more, you know, in a year like this, I wasn't going to make the Olympics. And so when it kind of came this like, oh, should I cram some races in before trials? And, oh, there's not gonna be really a lot of racing opportunities later. Like, should I, shouldn't I? I kind of had the freedom to be like, doesn't, doesn't really matter. And maybe three years from now, if I'm, you know, on the line trying to compete for a team in Paris, I would decide to jump into it because there's more of like an immediate thing. But like to me, longevity, not just for our program, but also for myself is incredibly important mm-hmm. to me. I feel and that you have a competitive fire in you, like in that way, like you're like running still something you yeah. want to pursue. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, I honest, and I hate to say this, but I think if I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing any of this. Like mm-hmm. no offense, mm-hmm. but this sport has been cruel to me. (laughs) Like I had so many years in which I felt incredibly isolated, incredibly alone. And there was a period of time where I was just bluntly very resentful towards the sport. And that's because, you know, it was no like secret what happened to me during my time at the NLP. And this, this isn't true for every athlete, but there were plenty of people who witnessed some of the events that I've since talked about. I mean, like when I ran into the thunderstorm at Oxy in my dramatic New York Times piece, like that wasn't from a like empty tent where I was the only person in it. Like there were most of the fields for those races out there with me. And I think in, in a lot of ways, it would have been so easy for me to walk away. And sometimes I do wonder why I didn't. I'm like, was this a really great thing or was this like insanity that uh, propelled me forward. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there is just a love for the run and love for competition. And mm-hmm. I think there's nothing like better for my mind and for my body than to go out and learn something new about myself. Mm-hmm. And whether that's because I kill a workout or, you know, I learn how to like incorporate more balance into my day, whatever that learning moment is, I think that's powerful. And it's because I'm still in it that I feel excited to bring others into it in the way that I'm kind of currently um going forward yeah it's like you're reclaiming like healthy sport like you're like we can do this in a healthy way yeah and I think that's like really great because it's not all toxic you know what I mean so it's like you're like I want the healthy side of it and I want that yeah well I think I think that's a good conversation that has happened from your story Mary is a lot of the running community especially the women in the running community are like yeah like we are seeing versions of your story where 
girls don't last as long in the sport as they should, or they come away, you know, somewhat um, worse for wear or traumatized or with an eating disorder or, you know, facing coaches that don't understand like how girls should be coached. But then we're also like, but wait, like there is this amazing piece to it that's so empowering. And most people, even the girls on my college cross country team that weren't in the top five run for life, you know? So you're just like, wait, like how can we make this tipped more towards the healthy side? Cause we, we know it's there, but we also know mm. this other side is there. Yeah. And I think what happens, and this is what I'm trying to do with Atlanta is that the way a lot of people find healthy sport, or at least traditionally the way it happened was insert horrible things midway through their career, whether in the lead fashion or otherwise, and then them having to make the active choice of saying, I'm, I'm not going to continue to have that be my experience. And then actively having to search out like mentors, role models, or experiences that bring a positive outlook back to sport. But the problem with that process is one, it brings pain to people having to kind of go through something bad to pull them out. But then two, it's also something where you lose a lot of people through that. I mean, the number of Mm -hmm. girls who've reached out to me and said like, this is why I'm no longer running just breaks my heart because we could have prevented that. And some of that prevention just has to be taking the bad people out of sport, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a battle that of course I'm always fighting, but you know, you can't, you can't get rid of everybody who's a problem. And so the other part to it is just earlier on in that process, giving the girls the tools to make sure they're not a part of those statistics by kind of teaching them the warning signs of Mm -hmm. when to get out of a situation by teaching them like kind of coping mechanisms that are healthier so that like, if they're in a stressful position, they don't decide I'm going to starve myself to do better, but maybe they do breathing exercises and, you know, tools that we almost, I mean, I'm 25, but like as an older athlete, I've been in this for eight years, kind of have to figure out because something went wrong and they are like, I guess this is plan B versus Mm -hmm. teaching people. This is the way to do it. This is plan A. Preventative. Yeah. What makes me sad about what you you said at the start about your story of going from high school where you were healthy and you were thriving and you were flying. Um, that like, you know, the, what you're welcome to pro sports was like lose weight. And like, that's just so sad because, you know, you're already doing great. You're already professional athlete level and, you know, you're already flying. (laughs) So there was no need for that. And I'm just so sorry that happened to you. And like, for anyone listening, like all pro sports isn't like that. And like, you know, I think that's what you're trying to demonstrate as well that it doesn't have to be like that. And we agree. I think I can speak for everyone on this call. We all agree with that. Um, no, and I, <laughs> I appreciate it. And I think that's why I, the other day I was actually talking to a recruit and, you know, I'm sharing a little bit about my story and they were asking questions. And I was like, I just want to pause for one minute and say like, this all makes it sound really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and that's because it, it was for me, mm. unfortunately. But again, I, I wouldn't still be here if I didn't have hope. A Hope is by far the most important piece to any like ability to continue. But B, if I didn't also know that currently there already are things that are so positive and so beautiful and people who are doing the work and making change and um, like, you know, currently giving people opportunities to be in this super positive. Or, but I think the difference between going pro in 2013 and going pro in 2021 is very different. 
And I have to imagine if you went pro in 2000 or 1990 or 1980, like we have progressed. I think the problem is that so often, you know, that makes it so it's like, oh, we're kind of lucky. Like we didn't live through the pre-title nine years. So like as things go, track is decently equitable in that for men to women, there's usually the same prize money. Um, we don't know how much anybody's being paid because we all have to sign NDAs. And so it's unclear how much of a gender pay gap there really is. But like, hypothetically, it's even, I don't even know. <laughs> there's, there's no way. There's no, yeah. I, I mean, I'm guessing not actually. I think so often people will just be like, this one woman probably does well. And then everybody's like, oh, yay, track. Um, but I think because of this, like, almost, ability for people to market and say like, look, like we support women and look, like you're getting the same prize money and you're in the same meet and all this. I think it can often make people feel like we've come a long way. So we're doing well versus Mm -hmm. we've come a long way and it's horrible. We need to make this better. (laughs) I think maybe a lot of women are, are getting an opportunity to like be marketed in some capacity. By no means do I think that a woman is getting paid the same as a male in the same space, but uh, in track and field where, where it is equal is at the world championships at uh, diamond leagues, the prize money is the same, but (laughs) as it comes from sponsorships, like it's just like, maybe we'll just, you know, we'll get 10 women and pay them a hundred dollars and then we'll get one male and pay him, you know, obviously you guys would get paid a little bit more than that, but just trying to use. Yeah. No, I think that's also a good, I think that is actually a good point. And I think, you know, there's also the like why behind people are being paid. Right. I know um, Runner's World had recently come out with a piece about sponsorship and I was laughing reading it. And it was a great, the piece was great, but the quotes were hysterical because it was like all these men in sports marketing departments being like, we still only value performance. And I was like, oh, honey, please no you don't like that's that's not really how it's done like it's done that way until it's not yeah and the problem is from a equity standpoint and like you know what a lot of the work I've seen organizations kind of doing especially in the light of you know all that happened over the course of 2020 with Black Lives Matter movement and diversity equity inclusion becoming like an even more predominant part of like your American like workforce or at least more in New York city, probably nationwide, unfortunately Um, you're seeing that there is a real, real need to create more standards of like why anybody's being paid and and what that actually means. And I think in track and field, it's one of the most egregious examples of like the dart just being thrown at a dartboard. And then after the fact, them kind of saying like, no, there was a real mathematical equation and it was all about performance. And I'm like, mm, I've been in those rooms before. I know what you say about women. Mm, that's what they look like a little bit, what they look yeah. like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, definitely need more women, more yeah, women in those rooms. You know, more women. You the thing when, when you're 17 years old and you're always like at the very back of any ad or something, you know, you, you, like it's, it starts to be like, oh, do they not think I'm pretty enough? Like, is that why I'm back here? And, you know, and again, they would probably say that's my problem versus their problem like kind of not because that's what the little girl who's looking at the ad is going to think. 
mm-hmm. they're gonna be like, oh, I I guess the one they put in the middle is who they think is the most attractive. And, you know, I can barely see Mary, so I don't know what's going oh, yeah. on. <laughs> I remember when I was with Nike and I was like, you guys don't ever even use me when I was trying to get out of the, the whole, you know, Nike debacle. And they're like, we have a whole marketing department and you just don't fit our look. And I'm like, all right, I gotta go. Um, where's my where's my stuff? you know anyway um they're lost they're lost guys thank you so much for being here with us thank you for keeping track we can follow mary kane on instagram on twitter run at run mary kane kane is c-a-i-n and then of course her wonderful organization that she is the ceo of at atlanta new york city that's again the website that you can do your magic is um atlanta nyc.org but it's not like at atlanta guys it's like one word at atlanta just trying to help you all right forget it (laughs) anyway um thank you so much mary um one thing i want you to leave our audience with is what would you say to a young up-and-coming athlete who has no idea what the heck they're doing in a crazy very scary profession what would you say to help them keep their wits about themselves I think one of the most important things is to have many support networks and that might sound like a lot of work but it's really not in that don't go into any form of profession whether you're in sports or otherwise and suddenly think that has to be your whole life keep your friends keep your family keep reaching out to them keep asking them questions And if you look around the room and you realize, "Mm, all of my friends look the same as me, all of my friends are runners, all of my friends do the same discipline as I do, then you should also take a step back and reconsider, why is that the case? Is it because you kind of want to hear everybody saying yes versus hear other people's opinions, other people's thoughts, and almost be challenged on the day to day? And if the answer to that is yes, then go out and meet new people and, and reach out to other people who you follow and maybe are inspired by. And, and don't be afraid to branch out. You know, the biggest advice I've ever given to like high schoolers and college kids is if your only friends are on the track team, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. Go talk to that kid in your math class, go join another club because it's in those moments where you struggle. It doesn't mean your track friends aren't incredible friends, but they're not always going to have like the same, like, healthy perspective is your math friend who's like it doesn't really matter (laughs) (laughs) I love it it. that's so so healthy I love your perspective on everything honestly this has been great I'm excited to listen back um again everybody thank you so much Mary Kane for keeping track with us follow her on all of the social spaces and of course her organization the same at at Atlanta thanks Mary keep track keep track
Major shout-outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. What is this technological thing you got going on here? It looks like there's a button. It's called a cloud. (laughs) Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.